I want to begin uh, this evening reading to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Hear these words from Paul. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law towards Christ, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. The weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. Amen. Next year will mark the 20th year that I've been in the ministry. And these years have flown by and I hear the next 20 are going to go just like that. I wish we knew a way to slow down life. One of the criticisms that has been often thrown in my direction are enough that it's not one or two or three times, but it's it's come quite frequently over the years, is that I don't talk about hell enough. And I think that that conversation or that criticism is probably valid, perhaps in some ways, it's Certainly something that a lot of people have seemingly agreed upon. I just, at some level, don't know that hell is the greatest motivation to get people to live holy for a long period of time. But having said that, it's important for me to remind myself, and I think it's important for you to remember as well, that the bottom line, as much as we want to Uh, lessen the impact of the statement, the bottom line is that lost people go to hell. I was uh, going uh, to Panera Bread uh, this afternoon. I went in, I ordered a salad to go. Nice man took the order. I go around and a very nice woman gave me the bag with the salad. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you work at Panera Bread in Heath, Ohio, and you're nice and you're friendly, if you're lost and you die, you'll go to hell. I went into the hotel there at uh, the Hampton Inn. Nice people, four people there. One of them had baked cookies and Great chocolate chip cookies. Don't know why she's working in a restaurant or a hotel when she could be making cookies for a living. But there she is. And it was lovely. It was nice. These are nice people. But if you work in Hampton Inn, in Heath, Ohio, and you die lost, you'll go to hell. I'll go home, and I'll take my van when I get back to Greenville, to the mechanic, and he's a nice man, but if he dies lost, he goes to hell. Next week, I'll go find the woman who cuts my hair. She's a wonderful person, a wonderful barber. But if you cut hair in Greenville, Tennessee, and you are a lovely person, and you die lost, you go to hell, according to the Bible. If your parents die They may be your parents, and you love them dearly. If they die outside of the faith, they'll go to hell. Your children, if they do not come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and follow him in faith, and they should die, they'll go to hell. Your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your grandchildren, The person sitting next to you on the pew, if they're not saved, they'll go to hell if they die. If there's a youth here 
and they have grown up in the church and they have been taught the oracles of God and, and either they leave this church on their own fruition, they're drawn away by the world, or things happen in this church that cause them to be turned off to the church and they leave and in the leaving they leave the faith that they were trained with and they don't come back and they die, they'll go to hell too. Lost people go to hell. And Paul, I think, was more concerned about that than anyone else. And that's why in this passage, in verse 22, he says, I became all things to all people. I went everywhere. I bent myself as far as I could so that I might save a few people. And he's not saying that I might save them from addictions, although that would be part of it. He's not saying that I went everywhere so that I could save them from going to a Babylonian church. It's not why I did it. I didn't go everywhere to save them from being Democrats. I went everywhere to save them from going to hell. That's why I went. And Paul is this amazing person. And you say, well, Paul, how did you do that? What was your strategy for going and using uh, the gifting that you have and the calling that you have and the anointing you have? All of that, Paul must have been part of it, and it was. But, but what was the strategy? Because we look at a guy like Paul and we say, well, he had to have something that I don't have. The truth is, is that he, he didn't really have anything that isn't available to you and I. I mean, Paul, by his own admission, was limited in some degree in his gifting. Uh, he talked about being feeble and not being as impressive in person as, as he sounded in his letters. Um, Paul was a very gifted person, but... You've been given a gift. And so that couldn't have been entirely what made Paul special. Uh, you say, well, well, Paul ministered in an easier time than we minister. And I think that he would say, you guys are full of it if you think that was the case. Everywhere I went, they tried to kill me. It wasn't an easier time. It wasn't because I had an easier situation that uh, I was able to save a few from from hell? You say, well, Paul, but you were filled, you were anointed, but the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that dwelled in Paul dwells in you and I. Amen. True. So you come to Paul and you say, Paul, what was the secret? You were able to minister. You were the first person to win a convert on the continent of Europe. You were the first person to win a continent, uh, a person, a convert on the continent of Asia. You went everywhere. You are the great uh, predecessor of every evangelist besides Christ. What was your secret, Paul? Again, you and I would want to say, well, it was your preaching and your standing for the truth and the courage that you had in the line of fire and your faithfulness in writing. All of that is true, but Hear Paul out tonight because he doesn't put his success on any of those things. Paul says, I was successful in winning people because I crucified my preferences and did what it took to win people. Amen. And in the first part of that chapter, if you go back to verse 5, uh, Verse 4, pardon me, Paul says, the first thing that was the secret to my success in seeing people come to Christ being saved from hell was that I laid aside the right to eat and drink what I wanted to eat and drink. Right. Now we say, well, that's a small thing. No, that was huge. Uh, in the uh, Jewish uh, 
extra biblical writings, the Talmud uh, particularly, uh, you know, the, the Jews never thought that Moses was as clear as he should be. And so for the Jews, you have what Moses said, and then you have their uh, commentary on what Moses said. And so when Jesus was talking to the Jews about the tradition of the elders, he was talking about all this commentary that they had explaining what Moses really meant. But two-thirds of the Talmud has to do with eating and drinking. It was huge. Who you ate with, how you ceremonially cleansed your hands, what you ate, when you ate, that was Huge for a Jewish man and woman. It was two-thirds of their law. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, I grew up in a day when it seemed like two-thirds of what we talked about, we we talked about the standard, and two-thirds of the standard is what you look like, how you did your hair, and how you clothed yourself. It was a big deal. And if you say, boy... You know, it didn't matter to me what I what I dressed like. That was like, oh no, now you're in the wrong joint. When Paul says, I crucified what I ate and drank, that was the Jewish issue. For the Jews operating in the secular pagan world, the big issue was uh, what to do with, uh, one of the big issues was what to do with the meat sacrificed to idols because any meat market that you went to, the meat being sat, being sold had been previously almost always sacrificed to idols. They would sacrifice it in pagan temples. They would take most of it and uh, of that sacrifice. They would take it, put it in the meat market. And so if you wanted to buy a steak, you had to go down to the temple meat market. That's where you got the meat from. And for the Jews, you can't buy the meat there. And I think you and I can sympathize with their thinking. For the Jew, if you go buy the meat at the temple meat market, the pagan temple meat market, I should say, first of all, you're helping to support the pagan meat market. You're keeping the temple open. And so the Jews were like Christians, you know, today. And I have no problem boycotting Target. Thank you, I haven't bought anything from Target, but understand, for the Jew, you ought to boycott the pagan temples and not buy their meat. It's a big deal for them. Secondly, the the, the food had been partially sacrificed, and so it had been offered to the false god, and there was a way in which then eating the meat was, in a sense, worshiping the idol that it was sacrificed to for the Jew. It would be similar to us taking communion. It's just not bread. It's just not Welch's grape juice. It's an act of worship. The Jew, you didn't mess with the meat. And Paul says, listen, no problem with me eating the meat because What they sacrifice to, and this is in chapter 8, what they sacrifice to is nothing. It's a rock. It's meaningless. So it it, it hasn't been sacrificed to a god because they're worshiping, they're not worshiping a god to begin with. So if the temple of Diana's got to sell on meat, go down there and buy it on sale. Who cares? For the Jew, that was... It's like, what? You're going to eat the Muslim steak at Target? I, don't, I mean, this is so, so wrong for you to say something like that, Paul. You're keeping the temple in business and you're eating something that has been dedicated to a pagan god. What is wrong with you, Paul? Paul said, I don't have a problem with it. Meat is meat, and the idol is nothing but rock. If you get it for a good price, eat it. But he says, but I don't do that, chapter 8, 13, because that would cause other people to slip in their faith. I don't have a problem with it. And I, me traveling around all the place, 
I'm sure Paul has to say, I got to buy a lot of food. I got to eat out a lot. And that's where you get the good stuff. I don't have a problem with it. But for the sake of people who do, particularly for the sake of converts from the Greek culture that did those things and it was an act of worship for them, I don't do it in front of them because it might draw them back, not into eating meat, but it would draw them back into eating and uh, in their minds, it would be sacrificial in nature, and I don't want to do that to them. But Paul says, in regards to the biggest issue the Jews have, perhaps, at this moment, my conscience says one thing, but to win a few, I'll do the other. Now, what's interesting is that Paul just isn't concerned about the Jewish people He's concerned about the Greek people, too. And so then in chapter 10, he puts on a clinic in situational ethics. It's interesting in chapter 10, verse 23, that he says, Well, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things don't edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now, here he comes. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. So he says, if you're in the meat market, don't ask about the meat. I don't want you to tell me where it came from. I don't want you to tell me if it was sacrificed this morning. It's a good deal. I'll buy the meat. He says in verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. So if you're invited to eat, and it's in a Greek situation, sit down, eat, and don't ask them where they got the food from. Unless, verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake. So if you're sitting there and somebody whispers and says, you know where they got the meat from? It was a temple of Artemis. Don't eat the meat. Don't ask, don't tell. As long as you haven't been told, eat the meat. If they tell you, don't eat the meat. In other words, some of you may be new to this church, the best, perhaps, invitation you can get in this church is to Sister Anita Lane's for dinner. Probably the best invitation you can have. If you get invited to Sister Anita Lane's and she serves fruitcake, don't ask if there's rum in it. Don't ask. That'd be rude. Don't ask what her secret ingredient is. Don't ask. Just eat it. It's important that Sister Anita Lane make it to heaven. Don't offend her. She might get mad at you and then die that night and then get her to heaven. Don't ask. You're a guest. Don't be rude. There's rum in it. The Lord will help you get home. But don't, don't be rude. Unless Somebody whispers to you and says, you know what the secret ingredient is, don't you? It's rum. If you know, you're going to have to find a way to excuse yourself. Can't eat, can't eat the cake. What, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, in whatever situation I am in, it's not what I want to do. It's what is spiritually edifying to the people involved. Uh, if being rude is not edifying, I'm not going to be rude. Now, 
there are some cases where if, again, if there are people who are weak in the room, I have to be careful for them because probably the person whispering to me, you know what's in the cake, is probably weaker spiritually than Sister Anita is, so i got to deal with this person, not Sister Anita. See, in the church sometimes we say, well, that, that sounds so hypocritical. No, it's what is called loving people. It's what is called being wise. Those who win its souls are wise. This is what is called spiritual wisdom. Paul says, uh, comes to eating and drinking, it all depends what is the best for the people in the room spiritually in the moment. And then he goes on and he says in verse 9, it's not only have I given up the right to eat and drink what I would want, he says in verse 5, do we not have, do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas or Peter. In other words, Paul is saying, I have a right to marry. I'm not a Catholic priest. Marry. But I'm more effective at winning people to the Lord single. Now notice, that wasn't the case with Peter. Peter had a wife. A lot of people had a wife. That wasn't the issue. But Paul seems to be saying, I'm better when I'm unattached in the moment. So I've given up the right to be married. And then in verse 7, he says, and I've given up the right to draw a salary from you folk. But then he spends a lot of verses saying, but I have a right to it. I've just given up a right. And in verse 7, he says, what person going off to war uh, uh, is not funded by the person sending them the war. And so the church ought to fund the pastor who is the soldier. Then he says, and, and what person who owns a vineyard doesn't eat the grapes from the vineyard? And what person who has a flock of sheep doesn't eat his own sheep? He draws from the flock for his own nourishment. And so he's saying, I, I have a right as your spiritual father to be supported by you financially. He says, but I have given up that right so that others who seem to have a problem with that will listen to the gospel. He's trying to tell them, listen, you Corinthians, I came for your soul, not for your gold, and I want to be clear, and so I'm going to do this for you. I don't have to do this for you. What Paul is simply saying is that everything about my life is geared towards saving people from hell. Everything I do by way of preference, it wasn't just the preaching. It wasn't just the services I conducted. It wasn't just the evangelism I did. At the core, the reason for my success was that saving people from hell was more important than my personal preferences. That was at the core of why I succeeded. And so if you'd have gone up to Paul in Corinth, and there's Paul sitting in a golden corral in Corinth. And you go up to Paul and say, Paul, what's wrong with you? Haven't you seen the buffet, man? They got ribs up there, they got steak, they got fish, they got everything up there. You don't go to Golden Corral to eat the salad. What's wrong with you? Paul would have said, well, in Corinth, I eat the salad because Corinth is a place and a lot of folks come in that have a problem with the meat. Uh, now, when I get to Athens, I'll eat the steak, but in Corinth, I'll eat the salad because I care about the Corinthians. I do it because I don't want people to go to hell. You, uh, if you saw Paul and say, well, Paul, why are you, why are you single, Paul? You just never met the right woman, right? You just never, you, or you knew a woman, but the timing was never right, and it just worked out, and she ended up marrying your best friend. It's something like that, Paul. That's why you're single, right? It's like, no, Paul. Paul would say, no, I, I counted the cost. And, and I said to myself, I can win more people to Christ and save some people from hell 
if I don't have to spend so much time trying to keep my wife happy, then save people. Yeah. <laughs> I know you can't say amen because of who you're sitting next to, but you know it's true. If you'd have saw Paul and that Paul. Paul, here you are, it's the wee hours of the night, and you're making tents, Paul. Uh, what, what are you trying to do? Make more money to put in your retirement account? Uh, you're saving for something. You're, you're saving for a new camel, right, Paul? That's why you, you're doing that. Paul says, No. The reason I sit up late at night and I sew tents is so the Corinthians know I didn't come to Corinth for their gold. And if I sit here and make tents, there will be some people that are going to hell now that will go to heaven. Paul talks about, to the Jews I became a Jew. The Jews, again, held on to the law. And, and Paul knew a lot of those things in the law weren't applicable to the gospel day. He understood that. The, the Jews had, again, their peculiarities about eating and a lot of who, things about who they dined with, a lot of things about special days and Sabbaths. And Paul said to the Jews, I became a Jew. So, you know, if you would have run into Paul during the festival of the tents, you would say, Paul, man, you go to all the festivals, you go to all the holy days, you... You really like to take a day off, don't you, Paul? Like, no, I show up so that maybe today there's somebody who's lost that won't go to hell. And then to, to the Greeks, he became as, as, a, as a Greek. And so he knew Greek philosophy. And when he goes and preaches in Athens, he quotes Greek philosophy. There, there are books that have been written about how many things Paul said that were actually quotes from Greek philosophers, and that number is in the dozens. Paul was very well versed in Greek philosophy. And so if you were to sit down and say, Paul, why are you lugging all these Greek books there? And you like Greeks? He said, no. I know they're all inferior to the Savior. I know they know nothing that I hadn't already been taught by Jesus Christ. But you know, if I can quote their own writers... There may be people who are going to hell that will go to heaven. So I do it. Everything Paul did, he said, was funneled through the issue that I might win some people. Again, it was not entirely the preaching and the writing. It was not entirely his persistence and his work ethic. Paul, by his own mouth, has said the key to winning souls is the crucifixion of my own preferences, even at some level my own convictions, so that lost people won't go to hell. So you have to hold on to that. You have to believe as a believer, I think, and as a body of believers. First of all, that people going to heaven is more important than any preferences or traditions you might hold dear. Got to hold that. That's a secret. That's a secret. Um, I have a, uh, an associate pastor. He's really not. He pastored the church before. He does what he wants to do, but uh, he's not the senior pastor, so we'll call him an associate. And he, he tells me often about uh, a conversation he had with Carl Reynolds. Carl Reynolds pastored a large church of God in the Springfield area, I believe. It was a very, very large, thriving church. And he said, as a young preacher, I, I sit with Carl Reynolds and said, Brother Reynolds, does it bother you that you have little formal education and all in this town, all through this town, are people, are preachers with lots of education. Carl Reynolds said, no, that doesn't bother me. He said, they got the education and I got the people. 
And he reminds me of that conversation because we're in a church, we're in a county with about 300 churches. And uh, most of them are small, most of them are very traditional, very traditionally grounded. And they got their traditions. And they got their special days and they got their way of doing worship and they've got their picnics and they got their stuff. They've got all their traditions and their preferences. But we'll take the people. We'll take the people. And that's what our church is about. Um, we, we are out to win the people. And the Lord is giving us a lot of success at the moment. Things come and go, but, but the Lord has given us tremendous amount of success at the moment. And you know what? Uh, there are people who have told me, you know you're not going to be popular with the ministry in town if, if you aren't a little more traditional. You're getting a little more in the contemporary range. That's going to hurt your reputation. You know what? Lost people not going to hell is more valuable than my reputation with the ministers in town. There's times in my life when I say, let the dead bury the dead. Let the traditionalists bury the traditionalists. If, 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 that's, if that's as important to them as it is, they can have it, I'll take the people. The issue with winning people from hell is primarily an issue of crucifying your preferences. In many ways, there, in many ways, there has never been a time in America where it should be easier to win people to Christ. There are so many lost people. Everywhere there's lost people. And there have been multiple, multiple books written about how hungry this generation is. We are ministering to the generation that grew up in broken families. We're ministering to the generation with the drug issues. We're ministering to people who are hungry and thirsty. And there is a problem when Christians can't even sell living water when everybody around them is thirsty. That's a problem we ought to think about. I want the people. I want the people because those are my kids. Those are people that Jesus Christ died for. It's important that lost people not go to hell. No, it's it's interesting. And I've grown up in the church and you know, one of the ways to get people sometimes really going is you talk about how Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary and he would have done it if you were the only person. If you were the only person alive, Jesus loved you so much, he would have died for you. And that's true. And then we say that and we as a church sit around and say, you know, we could probably win 100 people if we made some changes it's like, now we're going to do that. What Jesus would have given his blood on Calvary for one person and your tradition is not worth winning a hundred. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? The, it's the preferences that have to be dealt with. And to be honest with you, I'm just preaching it like I feel like it. <laughs> I got a place to go. I don't have to stay. <laughs> Most of the criticism that comes from, I'm just going to say what I want to say. Churches that aren't going somewhere against churches that are about lukewarmness and, oh, they're just selling out and, oh, they're compromising, whatever. The reason most churches that are growing are growing is because they are outworking the other churches and it ain't close. In many ways, it's just about work ethic and some churches want it more than other churches do. I was uh, downtown and uh, 
went into uh, the Catalyst in Greenville. Catalyst is owned by the First Christian Church downtown, and I know their pastor. He's a godly man. And um, fastest growing church in our community in the last 10 years. They've done phenomenally well. And I was talking to uh, the guy who runs it. He's one of the associate pastors. I think they have eight on staff now. And I uh, said, hey, uh, just curious, when's, when's your staff meeting each week? When do all of you ministers get together and talk about what you're doing? He said, the staff meeting at the First Christian Church in Greenville is Tuesday morning at 6.30. I thought, wow. Wow. They're killing us. I mean, they're just absolutely killing us. He's got eight or nine guys, and he's busting them in 50 hours a week, and they got to dig it out, 6.30 a.m. They got to be in the office ready to run all the way through Saturday. They just want it. They're, they're driven. They are on fire. They're taking large parts of our town, and their attitude is the attitude that I want to have and what I want my people to have. The other churches can have whatever they want. They can have their reputations. They can have the things that are valuable to them. They can have everything they want. We'll take the people. We'll just take the people. Because we don't want lost people going to hell. So it's important fundamentally, first of all, as a believer, Paul is saying, listen, a lot of things I do that are valuable and uh, perhaps would have been important to me if things were different, were not profitable to me in rescuing lost people who are going to hell. And so I made those changes. It's important then, secondly, and this is another issue that believers deal with, is that all lost people are important to God. Lost people are more important than preferences. All lost people are more important than preferences. And oftentimes in churches, we get into the mindset that, you know what, uh, We'd rather have people from a legalistic background. By the way, legalism is a sin. It's a sin to be a legalist. But we would rather have people from a legalistic sinful background than people perhaps from a background that we would define as deep in sin, however you would define that. We would rather have people who are cleaned up materialists, you know, We'd rather have people who look pretty and have nice houses and uh, are clearly violating what the Bible says about uh, materialism and uh, consumerism. We would rather have those people than the people who come from addictive backgrounds. We would rather have lily white people more than people with foreign accents. There's a sense in which we, we say, all right, some people are more important than our preferences. But listen, all people are more important than our preferences. Amen. All people are more important than our preferences. It's interesting there in Acts chapter 19 where uh, you have the council at uh, Jerusalem and uh, the apostles gather and they're gathering to try to figure out what to do with the Gentiles. And James, who I think is probably the sternest of the lot, stands up and says, well, listen, these Gentiles are coming in. Let's ask them to do four things. Don't eat things consecrated to idols. Again, this is getting back to the discussion with Paul. Seems to be some contradiction there. Of course, Paul is a few years later than that council. Don't eat things consecrated to idols. Do not engage in sexual immorality. Don't eat things that have been strangled and don't drink blood. But wow. Yeah, I mean, you think about these people coming in. It's like, who are these people? I mean, we, we get worried sometimes in the church when, you know, people show up with five different colors in their hair and the dress is much too short, but 
at least they haven't drink blood. As far as we know, I mean, these are people, I mean, these are like, uh, you know, Wiccan kind of people, man. These are, who's drinking the blood and eating stuff? That the, who's strangling the goat? I mean, who are these people? And think about all the other stuff that must have been wrong with them. I mean, if, if, I, if, if I run into somebody who's drinking blood, I got to figure they're doing a lot of other stuff I don't want to see. So these are not your most desirable people. And James, in the spirit of the gospel, says, we are not going to put on them any more restrictions than are necessary. I mean, we could really put the law down on these guys because there's got to be a lot of other stuff going on that's driving us crazy. But the Jews are going to have to cut it out and quit sniping at them. The Jews are going to have to let a lot of stuff go. And these guys are going to have to try at least Act like, to some degree, you're not trying to drive the other side crazy intentionally. Don't bring the blood to the church dinners. Don't bring the leave the goats alone, man. Uh, do you know? No blood. Sacrifices to the idols. Sexual immorality and the stuff strangled. Cut it out. But if you cut that out, we will accept you with open arms into the fellowship. Bring the fruit cake. Yes. Bring the fruit. They think about that. Those people it, were valuable to God and to the church. Yeah. Even people with a past of strangling goats and drinking the blood shouldn't go to hell. Think about John chapter 4 where Jesus is, has that great verse in verse 35 that says, don't say it's four months till the harvest. Look around. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields for they are already white on the harvest. Now the question is, what was you looking at? He says, look around. The fields are white on the harvest. You remember what he was looking at, don't you? The scene starts with him coming to Samaria. There's a city there. He sits at the well to the city. Woman comes out. He has that famous conversation. Now the Samaritans, the Samaritans were a bunch of pirates. I mean, what the Jews thought about the Samaritans was true. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were inferior morally and that they were extremely religious but extremely morally compromised. And they were right. Because the woman says, Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I've had five husbands. The man I'm with isn't my husband. And then she has the gall later to say, my family and my people, we all worship on that hill up there. It's like, what? Five husbands, you're sacked up and you go to church. It's an extremely compromised people. And the Jews that were on to something. Jesus says, you know, if you ask me, I'd give you living water. They have that conversation and you know that he miraculously saves her. She goes back into the Samaritan town. His disciples come out. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't think Jesus is looking at a field. I think he's looking at the city. He says, you know, you guys talk about the harvest in four months. But the fields widen the harvest if you can see it. That town up there full of pagans full of people who've been shacking up, full of people who have more divorces on their record than, I don't know, kids, whatever. And they all go up to that hill and they worship together. Do you know what? If you could see it, there's a lot of people in that town that could be saved and won to Christ. There's a lot of people in that town 
who are going to hell that don't need to go to hell, they need to go to heaven. And there's a harvest right there, if you guys could see it. Now, again, you don't have to fault. Uh, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't fault the Jews who would say, I don't see no harvest up there. I mean, what really needs to happen is Sodom and Gomorrah all over. The fire needs to devour that city. Jesus doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to the knowledge of salvation. Point, of course, of that uh, prodigal son. And I'm finished. I'm finished. This is my first conclusion. Prodigal son. You hear that parable, the prodigal son, he comes home. And on the surface, you think Jesus missed this conclusion. And you all have heard a lot of preaching in life, and you know what it's like when a preacher misses the airport and starts looping around. He, he had the sermon all lined up and ready to land, and he missed, missed the landing. And that's what seems to happen with Jesus. Jesus says the uh, prodigal son comes home, he was lost, but now he's found. Father puts his arms around him, puts the ring on his finger, the shoes on his feet, the robe, fatted lamb, fatted calf is killed. And now it's time to party. Amen. Time to get Peter to sing just as I am. Let's get the altar call going. Jesus says, but then there was another boy. Jesus, you missed it. But Jesus doesn't miss his endings. And when you look at that, then you have to go back. You have to say, oh, how genius he is. Because the parable starts with, there's a lamb, hundred Hundred sheep, one leaves, lost in the field. Woman's got ten coins. Uh, one is lost in the house. They search for it. But there's a boy. The boy is lost in the far country. Oh, I get it. The boy's the sheep. But there's a second boy that's the coin. He's lost in the house. And Jesus, of course, is hitting the Pharisees because uh, they're saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you with these people? And Jesus, of course, is giving this great answer. He's saying, listen, if you're a shepherd, if you lose 1% of your sheep, you go looking for it. And if you're a woman and you lose 10% of your coins, you go looking for the 10%. Why would I not come looking for a hundred percent of my lost children? But there are those in the far country, there are those in the house. And you got to sympathize with the guy in the house. Because there's no farm to come back to if he doesn't do his duty. The only reason the prodigal gets to come home is because the elder son stayed and kept the doors open to the house. And the prodigal is coming home to live off the older son's inheritance. He wasted his inheritance. How's he going to live? He's going to live off the older son's inheritance. And you can understand why the older son's so angry. And then you're going to bring him in and you're going to give him the family credit card again? Are crazy. And so he leaves. He goes out. Father comes out. And says, All that I have is yours, son. But essentially what the father says is, you don't have my heart. I get it. I get why you're mad. I get that this reconciliation with your younger son is going to come at your expense. But if you had my heart, you would pay it. And so there in that scene, the father leaves the house once for one son. He leaves the house again for the older son. Both are equally lost. 
One's lost because he's out of the presence of the Father. The other is lost because he's in the house, but he's out of touch with the heart of the Father. He's the guy that in the end doesn't really care deeply what happens to that lost brother of his. He doesn't care about what God cares about. I need to care and you need to care. Everything that is important to me now in terms of of tradition, in terms of even in some ways conviction, isn't as important all bundled together than whether or not lost people go to heaven or hell. And you know what? Some of us have children. And you may say, you know what? There's a lot of things that I, I, I think are more important than whether or not my church or whether or not I'm an effective soul winner. But the day may very well come when you hope and pray if you have a prodigal child that everybody doesn't feel the way you do. The day may come when you hope and pray that in spite of everything my child has done and I don't know where they are, I hope somebody out there doesn't feel like I do. I hope somebody out there will just see my child for what they could be, raggedy, addicted, tore up from the floor. Somebody, God, send somebody out there that doesn't care what they look like, that doesn't care about the preferences, Lord, let them go into a church somewhere who will look beyond everything they are and love them anyway. And you and I ought to be people who embrace the vision of the Great Commission. This is how you do the Great Commission. This is the parameters of the Great Commission. This is how you accomplish it, Paul says. This is how I did it. I went everywhere, and everything I did was geared towards seeing lost people not go to hell. You need to care about that. I need to care about that. Now, I talked to you about uh, the church in Greenville that, I mean, they, 6.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, they're at it. They're hitting the town. And... Uh, If you want a pastor in Greenville, you have to have a level of energy to keep up with them. And our guys are old, so, you know, we don't get going until later, but we stay up later in the day, I think. We try to match that intensity. But you know what? Who is more intense than the first Christian church in Greenville? The devil is. The devil is trying to get everybody to follow him that he can And if we can't match his intensity, we are not going to win this fight. Now, sometimes when you watch a ball game, at the very end, the commentator will say, well, you know what? Cincinnati should have won, but I guess Tennessee wanted it a little more today. They're a better team. I don't know how Tennessee won, but they must have wanted it a little more today. In a spiritual warfare, the team that wants it the most is likely to win. We have to want it. We have to say, listen, there's nothing more important than whether or not my family, my friends, the person on the pew next to me, the people that I'm around in town, the people that I associate with, there's nothing more important to me than being around the throne someday. There's nothing that I hold dear. It's not a, it's not a any, tradition that my church holds as a tradition that is more important than whether my children are saved, than whether my neighbors are saved, than whether or not we're saved. See, everybody in the church knows that they have to value souls. And if you ask anybody in a church Is soul winning important to you? Is it important that people get saved in this church? Is it important that people are regularly baptized, that there are regularly testimonies of bonds being broken and addictions being broken? People say yes. But nothing will happen until it becomes number one. And it's got to be a big gap. It's got to be a big gap. 
When you guys are looking for a pastor, don't ask what he thinks about camp meeting. Don't ask what he thinks about music. Don't ask what he thinks about the revelation message. All those will be important in time, but ask what his plan is to save lost people from hell. And if he hasn't thought about it, and if when he speaks he doesn't have a passion, he's not your guy. There's nothing more important than whether or not lost people avoid going to hell. Stand with me. Today you may be lost. I haven't been preaching to you, but now I'm going to talk to you for a minute. The reason it's important for people like me to care about lost people is because the God I serve cares about lost people. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to redeem you. That was precious blood on the cross. And if you had been the only one, he would have done it. He cares about you that much. He cares about your sobriety. He cares about your peace. He cares about your contentment. He cares about your present, and he cares about your future. You ought to give your life to him today. You ought to give your life to him tonight. And then leave here and go see how many other people you can save and take to heaven with you. It's that simple. That's the commission. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this place and for this day. For the grace and mercy you have poured on us. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ came. There's nothing more important than taking as many people as we can out of the kingdom of darkness and seeing them brought into the kingdom of light. Father, we owe it because you have done that for us. How ungrateful we would be if we forgot about that night, that day when we knelt on our knees and we begged you with all of our might to save us and to forgive us and to cleanse us and to remember our sins no more. And then we went out in life like there wasn't any other people tied up, bound up, and bonded. We just went on our way, forgot about everybody else in need. Father, help us to be people who remember. Remember the joy of salvation. We live our lives to see others born into the same kingdom that we enjoy. The fields are white in the harvest, Father. We live in a dry and thirsty land, and you promise that inside of us would spring up wells of living water. Father, it just doesn't make sense in a dry and thirsty land. But there's so much thirst, and nobody, not nobody, but so many people who should be drinking from the water of life aren't. Restore our passion. Restore our desire. Father, our children need to make it. Our marriages have to survive because we have to make it. A person that we're living with, that we treat so carelessly, if they die lost, they go to hell. This is important. A person that we're so careless with, with our words, if they die lost, they go to hell. People we walk by, people we fight with, the umpires that we yell at at our kids' games, like they're nameless, soulless people, if they die lost, they go to hell.
Lord, we commission ourselves to being agents of change, agents of the good news of Jesus Christ, that unto us a Savior is born, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins. And it's in his wonderful and marvelous and matchless name we pray. Amen.